Chapter Eight of the Harbor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Harbor by Ernest Poole. Chapter Eight. My work, as my father saw it now, was to write strong, practical articles presenting the respective merits of free ships, ship subsidies, and discriminating tariffs to build up our mercantile marine. But I was growing tired these days of my father's ideas, his miracle and his endless talk of the past. On walks along the waterfront he would treat it all like a graveyard. But while he pointed out the tombs I felt the swift approach of spring. It was March, and in a crude way of its own the harbor was expressing the season. In warm salty breezes the odor of fish and the smell of tar on the bottoms of boats being overhauled for the summer. Our Italian dockers sang at their work, and one day the dock was a bright-hued mass of strawberries and early spring flowers landed by a boat from the south. Everywhere things seemed starting, starting like myself. I had given up my warehouse job, and free at last from that tedious desk to which I once thought I was tied for years, with two sketches sold and ideas for others, so many others rising daily in my mind, I went about watching the life of the port. Poor Dad! He was old. Could I help being young? Without exactly meaning to, I drew away from my father to Sue. We felt ourselves vividly young in that house. We quarreled intensively over her friends and were pleased with ourselves in the process. We had long talks about ourselves. Sue let me talk to her by the hour about my work and my ideas, while she sat and thought about her own. "'If you're planning to write up the harbor,' she said sleepily late one night, "'you ought to cruise around it a bit in Eleanor Dillon's motorboat.' I looked at her in astonishment. "'Does that girl run a motorboat?' "'Her father's,' Sue yawned and gave me a curious smile. "'I'll see if I can arrange it,' she said. And about a week later she told me, "'Eleanor's coming to take us out tonight.' Some of Sue's friends came to supper that evening, and later we all went down to the dock. There was no moon, but the stars were out, and the night was still. The slip was dark and empty. Suddenly, with a rush and a squirrel, a motorboat rounded the end of the pier, turned sharply in, and came shooting toward us. A boiling of water she seemed to rear back, then drifted unconcernedly into the bottom of the ladder. In the small circle of light down there I saw Eleanor Dillon smiling up. She sat at her wheel, a trim figure in white, a white jersey, something red at her throat, and a soft white hat crushed a bit to one side. Beneath it the breeze played tricks with her hair. We scrambled down into the cockpit. It was a deep, cozy little place, with the wide-open doors of a cabin in front, in which I caught a glimpse of two bunks, a table, a tiny electric cooking stove, and a shaded reading light over the one small easy chair. There were impudent curtains of blue at the portholes. There was a shelf of books and another of blue and white cups and saucers and dishes. And what was that? A monkey crouching under the table, paws clutching the two enormous brass buttons on the gay blue jacket he wore, eyes watching us angrily as he chattered. Buttons, commanded his mistress, Come out here this minute and stop your noise. There's nothing for you to be peevish about. The water's like glass. When it's rough, she explained, 
he gets fearfully seasick. Come here now, pass the cigarettes. And this her buttons proceeded to do, very grumpily. Then, as a small, quiet hand pulled a lever, I felt a leap of power beneath me, the boat careened as she turned, then righted, there was a second pull on the lever, another surging leap of speed, and as we rushed out on the river now up rose her bow higher and higher, a huge white wave on either side. The spray dashed in our faces, everyone began talking excitedly. Only the buttons kept his monkey eyes fixed anxiously on his captain's face while he clasped the pit of his stomach. "'Oh, Buttons, don't be such a coward,' she said. "'I tell you it's smooth and you won't be sick. Go out there and stop being silly.' Slowly and with elaborate caution the monkey crept forward over the cabin. For a moment at the bow he paused, a ridiculous little dark-jacketed figure between the two white crests of our waves. Then with a spring he was up to his place on the top of the light, and there with gay gesticulations he greeted every vessel we passed. I had taken a seat by Eleanor's side. She was driving her boat with eyes straight ahead. Now and then she would close them, draw in a deep breath of the rough salt air, and smile contentedly to herself. After a time I heard her voice low and intimate as before. "'Finished up that hideous harbor of yours?' No, I answered hungrily. I think I've just begun. I caught a gleam in her eyes. You'll be out of your rut in a moment, she said. What do you mean, my rut? I demanded. The East River's stupid. Wait and see. From the little East River corner I'd lived in, we sped far out on the upper bay, a rushing black speck on a dim expanse, with dark empty fields of water around us, long luminous paths stretching off to the shores, where the lights twinkled low for miles and miles, and there were sudden bursts of flame from distant blast furnace fires. "'Tell me what you've been writing about this hideous place,' she said. "'Who said it was hideous at night? Of course, if you wrap it all up in the dark, so that you can see none of its sea-hogs, what's a sea-hog?' A sea-hog is a wallowing boat with a long black heavy snout, and mustering all that was left of my hatred I plunged into my picture. The whole place is like that, I ended, full of smoke and dirt and disorder, everything rushing and jamming together. That's how it looks to me in the daytime. Are you sure it does, still? I am, I answered firmly, and I'm going to write it just as it looks. Then look back of you, she suggested. Behind us at the tip of Manhattan the tall buildings had all melted together in one tremendous mass, with only a pinpoint of light here and there, a place of shadowy turrets and walls, like some medieval fortress. Out of it, in contrast to its dimness, rose a garish tower of lights that seemed to be keeping a vigilant watch over all the dark waters, the ships, and the docks, the harbor of big companies. My father works up in that tower, she said. He can see the whole harbor spread out below. But he keeps coming down to see it all close, and I've steered him up close to everything in it. You've no idea how much there is. She threw me a glance of pitying scorn. There are over seven hundred miles of waterfront in this small port, and I'm not going to have you trudging around and getting lost and tired and cross and working off your grudge in your writing. You can come with me some afternoon, and I'll do what I can to open your eyes. Please do it, I said quickly. 
she took me down to the sea-gate at the end of a warm, still, foggy day. There in the deepening twilight we drifted without a sign of a world around us, till in from the ocean there came a deep billow, then another and another, and as our small craft darted off to one side a gigantic gray shadow loomed through the fog with four black towers of smoke overhead, lights gleaming from a thousand eyes. "'Another sea-hog,' murmured a voice. "'I said in the daytime,' I replied. We went out on another afternoon to watch the fishermen fleets at their work, or scudding before a strong wind home with a great round radiant sun behind. She showed me fishers in the air, lonely fish-hawks one by one flying in the late afternoon back to their nests on the Atlantic highlands, and far out on the lower bay she knew where to stir up whole armies of gulls, till there seemed to be thousands wheeling in the air with the bright sunshine on all wings. The sunshine, too, with the help of the breeze, stole glinting deep into her hair. She watched me out of half-closed eyes. "'Is this daylight enough?' she demanded. "'This is simply absurd,' I answered. "'You know very well that this harbor is ugly in places.' "'Only in places. That's better,' she said. "'In a great many places,' I rejoined. "'Please take me to Bayonne some day, at two p.m.,' I added. It seemed a good, safe, unmysterious hour, and as we neared the place next day my hopes mounted high, for there was a leaden sky overhead and loathsome blotches and streaks of oil on the gray water around us, while ahead on the Jersey shore, from two chimneys that rose halfway to the clouds, poured two foul, sluggish columns of smoke. Still New York Harbor, I believe, I inquired maliciously, but Eleanor was smiling. What's the joke? I demanded. The southwest wind, she softly replied. I could feel it coming as she spoke. As I watched I saw it take that sky and tear jagged rifts in it for the sun, and then as those two columns of smoke began twisting and writhing like monster snakes, they took on purple and greenish hues and threw grossly reflections of themselves down on the oily water around us, filled with blue and gold shimmerings now. "'What a strange, wonderful purple,' murmured a quiet voice by my side. Stubbornly I resisted conversion. I wanted more afternoons in that boat. Now it's blowing that oily odor our way,' I declared in sudden annoyance. I no sooner get to enjoying myself when along comes one of the smells of this place. And where's the beauty in them? Can you show me? Here's a place that should be a great storehouse of pure, fresh air for the city to breathe, and... "'Oh, hush up,' said Eleanor. But I doggedly found other blemishes here, swamps, railroad yards, and sooty tracks that filled the waterfront for miles where there should have been parks and boulevards. At the same time I assumed the tone of one who tries to be fair and patient. Whenever she showed me some new beauty in water or sky I took great pains to look at it well. When an angry little squall of wind came ruffling over the summer waves in sweeping bands of deep, soft blues, I gazed and gazed at its wonder as though I could never have enough. And so gazing I spied floating there a sodden old mattress, a fleet of tin cans, and I said that it seemed an unhealthy thing to dump all our refuse so close to the city. "'They don't,' she retorted indignantly. "'They take it out miles beyond the hook. In short I considered myself mighty clever. 
Day by day I prolonged my conversion, holding obstinately back, while Eleanor revealed to me the miracles worked by the sunset here, and by the clouds, the winds, and the tides, the very smoke in the ship themselves, all playing weird tricks on each other. Slowly the crude glory of it stole upon me unawares, until, to my own intense surprise, the harbor now became for me a breathing, heaving, gleaming thing filled deep with the rush and the vigor of life, a thing no longer sinister, crushing down on a man's old age, but strangely deeply stirring. Look out, my friend, I warned myself. This is no harbor you're falling in love with. End of chapter 8 Recording by Tom Weiss